HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by the International Culinary Center, offering courses that range from classic French techniques in culinary, pastry, and bread baking to Italian studies to management, from culinary technology to food writing, from cake making to wine tasting. For more information, visit internationalculinarycenter.com. I'm Linda Palaccio, host of A Taste of the Past. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Good afternoon and welcome. This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights with me, your host, Katie Kiefer. Um, I just want to take a moment to say this is the last week of our fundraising drive for this uh, half of the year or maybe quarter of the year if you didn't pony up already. Do it now. Go to our website and press the donate button. It's real easy to give us money. And by the way, this week we have a matching grant. So any money that you give us is matched by our anonymous donor of obviously great wealth and excellent taste. So um, do it now. Go to the donate button and listen to this incredible program that you are about to hear. Um, I am interviewing in studio today. This is like I'm on a roll here with the people in studio. Um, But my guest today, and we're going to be deconstructing the burger industry, is Jamie Schweid, who is the executive vice president of sales, marketing, and IT for Burger Maker, which is a four-generation-old company uh, for retail meat sales, and they are distributing into all four corners of the United States. Jamie, welcome to the studio. Thanks a lot for being on the show. Thank you very much. So tell us about uh, Burger Maker. First of all, um, give us a little bit of a history of the company since you're four generations, and then tell us who you're selling to. So Burger Maker was started uh, about 35 years ago by my father. However, the history goes back over 100 years now. Yeah. So interesting, my um, my great-grandfather was a local butcher in Poland many, many, in the probably mid to late 1800s, and then immigrated over to the United States. And the, at that time, the Lower East Side was a very Absolutely. prominent food area within New York and because it was a ton of immigration. So sure. it wasn't just, you know, we were butchers at the time, but you had a lot of Italian immigration as well. So sure. that was sort of- And the, a lot of Jews. Yes, which is what, which is what we are. <laughs> yeah. Uh, at least I am. <laughs> kind of figured. Yes. So, <laughs> so interesting. So, you know, my gr- uh, grandfather grew up in the business, but, you know, wasn't really- uh, heavily involved with my great grandfather's version of the business. So at 18 years old, he actually started his own business, fabricating. 
Uh-huh. And so what he would do is he Interesting. brought... Yeah, which was pretty cool at the time. And he was bringing in hindquarters and forequarters into New York City, up yeah. in Harlem. And he was fabricating them and selling them to supermarkets, retailers. Were there supermarkets then? Yeah, there were. You know, Wallbaums was a, a big partner of his. Really? And actually... Funny story, Walbaums uh, and my grandfather partnered together to no buy a packing house in York, Nebraska. Wow. My father just had graduated from college at 22 years old in 1968, 1967, moved out to York, Nebraska for two years, and we ran a packing house with Walbaums. And right. It's, it's pretty crazy. I was actually out there for work a couple of years ago, and my dad said, you need to check out the Chances Are Diner. I said, that's this is 50 years ago. There's no way it's right. open. Drove by. Chances are diner. Still <laughs> open after all these years. It's, it's incredible. Awesome. That is awesome. So, um, you know, so, we, so my, my grandfather was, was doing this fabrication in the city. And my father then joined the business. And what happened is this evolution in, in most businesses, which is, you know, you started sort of the rudimentary, you know, family-owned um, feedlots, family-owned packing houses. And then consolidation comes in the industry. And they've realized that, well, they don't need people like my grandfather to do the work that they could do in Nebraska, Colorado, Mm -hmm. uh, in the Midwest. So they started um, something called boxed beef, which is basically what you you see today. Yep. And ultimately, my grandfather and father decided that wasn't the best business to be in. So Mm -hmm. they started trading boxed beef in the mid-70s. And then towards the tail end of the 70s, my, gra- uh, my grandfather and father separated. My father started a, a ground beef business. Uh-huh. He was selling boxed beef to a customer of his on Gansevoort Street, New York City. Right. The gentleman who uh, was buying didn't have the money to pay for the product. So he says, look, the option is I don't pay you. Well, the other option is I rent a cooler down on Gansevoort Street. Do you want to come into business? Right. So at that time, my dad said, you know what? Let's, let's at least give it a try and we'll see what happens. He goes uh, onto Gansor Street, but six months later, the uh, partner leaves, and uh, now we're a burger maker. And suddenly he owns a business. <laughs> suddenly he's like, uh, <laughs> I'm making ground beef. Right, right. Yeah, so that's the evolution. And so that started, what year was that? So 1978 okay. was when we were in New York City, uh-huh. up until 1994. Right. And the meatpacking district was truly the meatpacking district. It was district. truly the meatpacking district, yeah. I, I bought beef. I bought meat down there when I was a teenager even I remember when I first moved to New York I remember going down and buying a bag full of uh, veal to make something called Blanquette de Vaux which we and I didn't have any knives at the time so my sister and I cut it up with razor blades <laughs> and then I made what apparent what turned out to be sort of like rubber balls floating in in some sort of tasteless juice um, that was the beginning of my culinary career <laughs> unfortunately I improved uh, dramatically after that um, so now that we've had the history you on your website it says you produce the best tasting highest quality burger how do you define that and what are your benchmarks for producing high quality burgers my father has always taken the approach that and he takes a very simplified approach, which I think is wonderful. He says, if you put a really good thing into a product, a good thing will come out. Right. And good philosophy. I mean, you know, it's, it's like, and I always, you know, when I first started working with my dad, I would say, Dad, I mean, you're making very simple, simplistic, obvious statements. Yeah, Dad. Duh. And I'm like, <laughs> and then you start working in the industry, 
And you're like, wait, this is a really core principle of our business that nobody is really emulating. So what makes our burger, we think the best burger, or we know the best burger, is the raw material, the ingredients. We're not a least cost supplier, which is um, what you see on some of the much larger chains, which is cost driven. And and there's nothing wrong with that because there's a marketplace for everyone. Well, there is something wrong with it, but we can talk about that. We can talk about that offline, but yeah, right. <laughs> right now, we're talking about the best tasting, yes. highest quality burger, and how you get there. So we don't look at, you know, I mean, obviously, in the, in the end, we look at the somewhat of the cost. But of when course. we're purchasing our raw materials, we're looking at sourcing the best quality product from the mm-hmm. the best packers out there, and that's and that's how we start. And then our grinding process, which is very. We, we we just avoid touching the meat as much as possible. Right. And I that, saw that on your website. Yeah. You had a very very specific instructions. Don't handle the meat too much. You make the fat too hot. You melt the fat by handling the meat. You make the meat tough. I mean, it was really like, here's how you do it, folks. And I loved that you told people to put the little thumbprint in so that the juices would collect when you're doing the bottom side, which is a, a little trick that I learned actually from George Faison, one of your um, <laughs> one of your competitors probably. <laughs> yes. Um, but he has very distinctive ideas about how to make a burger and I, I really trust George in almost anything so <laughs> although I'm glad I don't have to do business with him uh, very tough dude um, but anyway to go back to this high quality so mm-hmm. let's let's talk about who your clients are so that people understand that really everyone all over this country is eating burger maker beef yeah so you know back to the core philosophies of my, my father he says look you know what we're a boutique burger shop and we're not out there to compete with all the big big guys and we're just who gonna... are the really big guys besides cargill well you re- i mean honestly you really have cargill you have a company called osi i don't know so that. osi is a very large company that produces product for uh mcdonald's oh i wondered who their grinder was yeah. i was wondering where that meat was coming from and, and they're i mean they're you know they're they're not just in burgers now i mean they're right. in they're in eight countries oh yeah they'd have to be they're humongous well not, i gotta research that company yeah. thank you for telling me who that is i've been wondering so, okay cool so the, yeah and they're you know they, they they do a very big job and then you have yeah. you know them cargo really the two larger larger players out there mm-hmm. and that's on the frozen patty side which is interesting because that's really a very small part of our business right on the fresh patty side there really isn't that competition because a lot of what's, you know, when we started, we were a local, regional hamburger supplier. Right. Because you couldn't cryovac burgers back then. You would right. make it that day, make burgers in the morning, and all right, we got to get it out by, you know, nine o'clock that day, or the, right. and you have to eat it by the next day. You know, and then what happened in, in the late, probably 80s, early 90s, my father, you know, started realizing that maybe I should be trying to sell outside of just New York, mm-hmm. and he brought in some cryovac machines. And we've been cryovacking the meat ever since. Mm-hmm. And so that gives us a really extended shelf life without putting anything into the product. Right. And so it allows us to ship, you know, all across the East Coast and Midwest. And then we have a someone out on the West Coast that, um, you know, we've put equipment into and they're making our products out there for our national accounts. So by our products, you mean by forming our patties? Yes. To the weight and the specs that you have determined are the best? Well, most importantly, the raw materials that are in mm-hmm. the product. Because that's, you know, we believe that's our point of difference, right? Absolutely. You know, we can all make a 5.3 ounce, three quarter inch patty, but the belief is the, you know, the quality ingredients we're putting in. Mm -hmm. So now, let me ask you this. Um, So we didn't say who your clients were. Can we say that? Yeah, no, absolutely. I'm sorry. Um, So we have very large guys. Yes. We have very large clients like Five Guys, Cheesecake Factory, Mm -hmm. um, Fuddruckers. Right. Oh, so, wow. Yes. And all fresh patties. Right. I mean, you know, we're not. So nothing is frozen. Uh, uh, it gets shipped fresh cryovac. Exactly. Cool. Exactly. And then, you know, we service, uh, you know, Bobby Flay, Bobby, mm-hmm. Bobby's Burger Palaces. 
yeah. is another big customer of ours. That's huge. So, you know, we, you know, but as well as those large companies, you know, we have places all across the country that have two, three locations. You know, there's a, a company down in Charlotte we sell called Bad Daddies. They have five units. Mm-hmm. They're looking, you know, they buy a, um, a specific product from us. So our goal really isn't to say we want to sell big. It's, you know, as a company, you evolve. And, you know, we still love selling small independent operators, supporting them because we're, we're a family business. Right. And we got to support other family businesses. So how many pounds of meat do you guys sell a year just to get a sense of what scale we're working on? Too much. No. Um, no. <laughs> never it's too much. never too much, yes. honey. <laughs> um, yes. So we're, so we're yeah, it, it's, a, it's a lot. It's, a, you know, in the summertime, it's a little more, but... You know, it's a little over like a million and a half somewhere pounds a week. Mm-hmm. A week? Yeah, a week. So 52 million pounds a year, uh, roughly. Uh, Maybe well, a little well, more. Well, not more. Yeah. Ends up being more because it's... 65 million pounds uh, a year. Probably more. I'll get yelled at by my father if I... Uh, okay, well, we'll keep it in the, <laughs> in the 75 to 100 million pounds a year range. We'll yes. give it a little bit of a range. I love ranges. Dude, that is... That's impressive. But just can you contrast that with, say, what OSI sells to um, oh. McDonald's? What are we talking no. about? No. Uh, <laughs> we can, can, I mean, just in the United States, not around the world, but just in the United States, what do you think their, their, uh, their level is? I mean, they're doing, they're doing probably, probably three, 400 million pounds. Uh-huh. Okay. I mean, so, you know, ground beef is a humongous category. Well, ground beef is something we should all be eating more of because as we were we talked about on the phone earlier before this interview, um, most of the cattle, most of the cow ends up being ground beef, right? Mm-hmm. So you have a 1,300 pound uh, car- carcass and you've got, you know, your steaks, your chops, your roasts, and the rest of it has to go into ground meat. It's roughly about 20% of the animal, actually. They say so around, how many pounds would that be? So I thought it was more, actually. 200, well, I mean, well. I thought it was like more like 600 pounds was ground meat and the rest of it was, was you know, middle meats and, and well, uh, well, specialty you, cuts. Well, the, well, remember, you also have other things, uh, part of the carcass, you have the offal, you have the, mm-hmm. the, hide, the hide, you have those types of bones. Yeah, all the bones. <laughs> and then, you know, there's different products that are created, but like the trimming that we buy, mm-hmm. I, I don't, you know, again, I don't get too much involved in you know the the sort of the your secondary purchasing? no the mm-hmm. secondary cuts of right. you know the trimmings that we buy in the conversations we've had it's roughly like 250 pounds per animal mm-hmm. oh so when you're buying trim you're not buying bench trim you're buying what other po- let's just narrow so, that down yeah, so, what is that so there you know we buy hind quarter and fore quarter trimmings off the animals uh-huh. so they're never bench trimmings uh-huh. because you know our, our you know we'll uh, we'll talk about HACCP and things like that a little later, but yeah. our program is very specific. You know, mm-hmm. we bring in product that's six days or less after fabrication. Wow! So we, it's fresh. Yeah. Everything's fresh. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's ground. Everything's just in time. So my brother has the wonderful job of having to make orders every single day yeah. and get, you know, we need 20 more of this and 30 more of that. And he's like, oh, yeah. What other products do you sell besides ground beef? I mean, you fabricate patties. Do you do other do you do other magic with ground beef? Is just, there... just bulk. So we have a we make a bulk product that I we see. sell to uh, customers who want to so make like the... a chub. Not a chub. Uh-huh. So the, the, it's a great question. So we got out of the chub business about call it six seven years ago. We should tell what a chub is. So a chub is a is a ten pound tube um, tube of <laughs> tube of meat, and so it's you know, gross. You know, <laughs> It's a it's a different product that is yeah. made in the industry that we made, and what the problem we are running into is, and, I, and you've seen it before, is you're, you're you know it, it goes completely against the philosophy of overhandling the meat. 
Yes, it does. So you're taking this, you know, you're taking this ground beef and you're shoving it into a tube, condensing it in there, right. taking out moisture, taking out we think flavor and texture. Well, and also you're not, you can't cool it fast enough. I understand is really what the problem is with chubs is that um, the meat in the middle stays warm for too long, and then then you have a proliferation of potentially fatal bacteria or or damaging bacteria. So what the companies do is uh, the, the larger packers is they take that meat right afterwards and they put it through like a like a water chiller. Mm-hmm. to get that meat inside very, very cold. Right. So what are you doing now? You're doing another step that's, right. that, that's affecting the meat. Now, we weren't doing that, but we realized it's, if, if our customers are going to say, you're a penny too much, we can't buy this product, and there's no point of difference, mm-hmm. it's probably not the best market for us to be in. Right. Very smart. I can see why you guys are expanding. Okay, so now where do you source your uh, meat from? Because it's not just local. It's not just even the United States. We talked about you buying from Australia because I'm going, by the way, to Australia in uh, a few weeks to tour some cattle ranches and processing facilities. <laughs> Talk about a hot time in the old town tonight. Um <laughs> Well, you're going in the winter, so it'll be great weather. Yeah, it will be. But uh, I don't think that slaughterhouses is everyone else's cup of tea in terms of like a tourist experience. <laughs> but for me, it's going to be really exciting. So um, tell me about why you went to Australia to buy some of your product and why Australia versus buying more from the United States. Well, so we, we buy, you know, let's, I want to be clear, we buy a lot, almost, I mean, almost all of our meat comes domestically. Yeah. So, but, but what, um, what my father found was that, one is the Australian beef supply is arguably as safe as the United States. They've mm-hmm. never had a E. coli issue there. The, the strain actually isn't in Australia. They don't have a one five seven. They do not. Wow. So it, you know Impressive. we still you know yeah. So then in addition to that, it's a very clean product. Mm-hmm. It's uh, almost all the product there is grass fed. Yes. It's not grain fed. Right. So. You know, we found, and my father, when he was putting all of the formulas together, he loved the flavor profile of mm-hmm. that mixed in with some of our fresher products. So, you know, we use it for one specific product. It's not something we use in all of our products. Oh, I see. So for yeah. one specific buyer, Australian beef gives a certain flavor profile that you're looking for mm-hmm. for that particular for that particular customer. Yeah. customer. Okay. Mm-hmm. So then let's talk a little bit about those proprietary blends. Cause that, that's just a nice little segue right into that. So you guys obviously produce proprietary blends. I know that five guys has, you know, they make a lot of their marketing is about proprietary blend. Um, what do you think about them and are they all they cracked up to be? So that's a great question. Thanks. Always, I try hard. That always gets me in trouble. <laughs> um, okay. <laughs> which is which I'm okay with. So the, the custom blend movement is is a very small niche movement within sure. the food world that, or in the burger world at least, that gets significant amounts of publicity for the amount of volume that's being sold. Uh huh. And so you know, conceptually, I look at it this way: a custom blend, I think, is a great product for a fine dining restaurant. Right for um, uh, for you know, Shake Shack. Well, I mean, or somebody like that. I, I mean, somebody. I would say more like a Manetta Tavern or a. Oh, cool. Because okay. a lot of times when you're dealing with these custom blends, it's a rich, overwhelming burger flavor-wise. Right. So whether you're Interesting. In, you're including short rib, mm-hmm. uh, brisket, we talked about. Yeah. Uh, hanger steak. Wow. Uh, which we use um, sirloin or or we call a porterhouse tail. These, yeah. These aren't what we like to call or at least I like to call anything that one would eat very, very consistently, like two, mm-hmm. three times a week. And if you're a lot of uh, the burger companies that we're selling, they're looking to make a product that appeals 
uh, from, a, from a sensory standpoint to as many people as possible. Right. And when you get involved in dry-aged meat, you know, you're, you're, you're really segmenting your product to a certain amount of people that like dry-aged beef. Right. And so what I found with the blends is it's something that we offer as a point of difference and complements what we do. And the, you know, a lot of chefs have come to us and, and work with us. But you know, ultimately, the products that we're making in addition to that are, um, are just as good we think as the blends, but you know, I agree with the you know, and that's how we got into it, is, is our customers. They need a point of difference. Yeah, you, you have to have something different. You can't sell the burger that everyone else sells. Right. And so, you know, that's why I think it's a great movement in the chef and restaurant world. Um, is they need to to create something that's different and it might not be just the burger. It might be the bun. It might be what they put on the burger. Sure. Whatever you know, whatever else. Yeah, and it's a great point of difference for you as somebody who's in the. Um basically the wholesale meat industry, right? Yes. Um, Jack, let's take a short break now, and we'll be right back with Jamie Schweig from Burger Maker. We're going to deconstruct some more burgers uh, in the upcoming segment. Stay tuned. I'm Grace Bonney, host of After the Jump. This summer, Heritage Radio Network is turning five. Since our launch in 2009, we've continued to bring you food and culture content like nobody else. And we need your help. HeritageRadioNetwork.org is a passionate, grassroots, action-oriented, nonprofit organization. That means we depend on the support from listeners like you to keep us alive. If you love what you hear on Heritage Radio Network, visit our website and become a member today. Thanks for listening and thanks for your support. The International Culinary Center is a proud sponsor of the HeritageRadioNetwork.org. The ICC, with locations in New York and California, provide cutting-edge education to future chefs, restaurateurs, and wine professionals. We're proud to claim Dan Barber, Bobby Flay, and David Chang among our honored alumni. This is Dorothy Can Hamilton from Chef Story. Check out our ICC website at InternationalCulinaryCenter.com. Hello, this is Mark Ladner from Del Posto, and you're listening to Heritage Radio Network. And we're back. Sorry. <laughs> we're having so much fun in the studio talking about amongst ourselves that uh, um, we didn't uh, realize that our, our break was over, and it's time to come back. This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. And boy, are you getting an eyeful today. My guest is Jamie Schweid. We're talking about Burger Maker, his family's company, and we're talking about burgers in general. And, and what we're going to address right now is the trend of burgers and upscale burgers that uh, you were telling me on the phone 15 years ago. If somebody had told you that this would be a big business, you wouldn't have believed them. What happened? How did this happen? So, so it's just such an interesting uh, conversation, you know, that that we were, that we had on the phone because you look at 2000, right? Let's 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 say, you know, yeah, 2000 let's start was at 2000, a 15 years ago. You had ago. Burger King, McDonald's, Sonic, Crystal, all these fast food places, right? And there were a lot of them. There yes. were a lot of units. Yeah, uh, I think it, before this, you know, huge subway movement, McDonald's, Burger King, Wendy's were then one, two, and three. Yep. So you know, you sat back and said. Where where is where is there room for more ground beef? Where is there room for more hamburger uh, restaurants? So right. then then you have this Five Guys expansion, this rapid rapid expansion where they basically came to uh, the marketplace and said, "We're just gonna make hamburgers." 
Right. We're going to make really good hamburgers with a really good bun, and we're going to throw some free toppings on and make some really good french fries. Yeah. So you and look they at, do all that. Yeah, and, and you know, and they're very, you know, I mean, I'm hyping them because they're a customer of ours, but but I mean, they're a family business as well as we are, and we started with them from the beginning. But you know, it leads to this concept of why Heritage Radio exists, right? People want to know more about their food. They want yeah. to know about where it comes from, but they also want to know the quality. And so this better burger category began because you had really a middle ground that was underserved. You had your fast food, you, you know, a dollar, you know, 99 cent menu burger. Right. And then you went out and you went to a, you know, a casual restaurant, your Chili's, your Friday's, your Applebee's, or here to, you know, make it more local. You went to the, the you know, the sort of the, the corner uh, diner and you had yeah. a burger. Right. But what they... And they were terrible. Well... Disgusting. Some of them weren't great. Some of them are good. But... <laughs> <laughs> oh, we're not going to name names here, right? <laughs> no, they, they could be potential customers. Yeah. <laughs> we got to upgrade. So, yeah. um, so now, you know, you have for the last 10 years, an explosion. Yeah. I mean, an explosion. Unbelievable. You, it's incredible how In many... In my neighborhood, we have five guys, five napkins, Mel's, uh, Burger, BRGR, and one other whose name I cannot remember now. And right. these are all upscale, good quality burger joints that are, I mean, in some cases more of a you know, real dining experience than others, but in general, it's a burger menu. I mean, think about the quality of that product there versus the, you're getting restaurant, you know, quote unquote, restaurant quality product yeah. in a more casual environment. Right. And as the tastes change, right? So you look at the millennial generation, you know, my, my father's generation is we want to go out, we want to have a meal, we want to sit down, we want to have the server come over, mm -hmm. we want to interact, we want to, you know, take our family out and do that. Well, that's changed, right? Yeah. So, you know, if you're a family who's, who, whose husband works and the wife works and you maybe don't have time to prepare food, you pick your children up and you can go to a, a fast casual burger place that has great burgers, great food quality, yeah, and be in and out there in, in, in a very timely manner. But know that the quality of what you're getting is far superior than perhaps what you were getting at these, you know, at a fast, fast food, food restaurant. At a traditional fast food yeah. restaurant. Yeah. Amazing. But interestingly enough, um, oh, well, let me just ask you this. Do you think uh, there's more room for more expansion? Do you think that this trend will continue or do you think that you've sort of like that's kind of topped out? I change my opinion every day on this. <laughs> I, I do. because Spoken I, like a smart man. I, 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 mean, I sit back I'm like and I'm dogmatic. going... Yeah, I'm sitting back going, how can there be more? How, how can there? And yet, there are more, and they're continuing to thrive. Yeah. And these, you know, the the the, the fast casual burger uh, market continues to grow. I mean, we get phone calls every week, new concepts, um, on, on, you know, a different play on burger. We are truly, and you know, my dad made a great decision going into the ground beef business. Yeah. We're, we're a hamburger nation. Yeah. And we're going to continue that way. Well, somebody was telling me, uh, George Motes. Do you know George Motes? Very well, yes. Uh, yeah. Great guy. Oh, Love George. And, um, and he's the one who does the, uh, the New York Food Film Festival and the Chicago Food Film Festival. But he also wrote a great book about burgers. And he wrote, he, I think there was even an HBO uh, series about him and his burger quest for the perfect burger. Um, <clears throat> and uh, why was I talking about George Motes? Well, oh, because we're talking about whether or not things are going to continue to expand yes. and whether there's going to be more innovation in this, in this category. And so what, is, what do you think George says well, about I, that? I talked to George about it. 
And by the way, shameless plug, we, do, we do sponsor the uh, New York, and there's a uh, Charleston uh, Food Film Festival oh, as well. Oh, I didn't know they had expanded. Yes, I did some publicity Chicago. for them when they were first starting to do this, because I've known the... Anyway, it doesn't matter. They're the best. But anyway, so... They I, are great people, So yeah. I, I asked this question to George, because, you know, I see what's out there, and I said, George, you know, when's this going to end? He goes, not anytime soon. Mm-hmm. He goes, we are... You know, if you look at it, we're in a suburban market, right? Now, I, I, I have the... the, the um, great opportunity to travel this country yes. for work. And I see other markets. Look, we're evolved, right? So yeah. we're at a point where if you said to me, New York City is going to add 10 more burger places, I would tell you we're saturated. But it's just New York. You have to look at the rest of the country sure. and see that there is still a lot of growth opportunity. And I, I, I feel like they're, you know, that the, the large, you know, the chains are struggling to find innovation because you have these regional units popping up mm-hmm. with better quality food. And there's still a ton of, of more expansion available, I would argue, outside of you know the New York metropolitan area. Right. Well, I mean, you know, In-N-Out Burger, for instance, has been an institution out in Los Angeles. They've always prided themselves on the quality. Mm-hmm. And they're just one of, I think, probably many little regional chains in California. Um, but I want to talk a little bit about the industry in general um, because I was doing some research for this and I saw that overall beef Beef sales uh, have been declining for the last three years, and we and and concurrently we have our lowest beef inventory since 1952. Um, so, what do you think? Uh, does that have an impact on your business? Does it have an impact on on uh, on quick service restaurants like McDonald's and Wendy's? Like, what what's happening with that beef inventory? And does it make the prices go up? So we're in a scary time right now. Yeah, uh, in terms of cattle on feed, cattle inventory that's out mm-hmm. there, and this inability to basically replenish the herd. Yeah. And, and you know, you, you have, and we can get into a, and I have this conversation with my brother and father all the time, you know, w- the motivation to replenish. I mean, 85% of the cattle ranchers in this country are independent. They own one yeah. single. So, you know, you're, you're taking the, this, you know, American, you know, dream, which was for many, many years to take over my family business and raise cattle. Now, a lot of those kids are moving to the, the cities. They're, they're, they're going urban. And so yeah. in those, and they don't want to maybe take over. The median age is 58. Yeah, see? So, I mean, <laughs> you, you look at that. And then you also have the, the financial aspect of it of, you know, banks have to loan you money. Yeah. The cost of land is going up. Yeah. You have this live cattle number, which continues to move up and down, up and down. So, at you know, it's, I think, over a uh, buck 50 right now. But it works well for the cattle ranchers now. But what happens if it goes down significantly? Right. That's, that's a, less And there money. are no price supports for meat. There are only price supports for uh, for crops, right? Yeah. For, well, for commodity crops, but y- not for commodity livestock. No, not for commodity that's livestock. And you have, you know, you have this, this supply chain starting with the grain cost, which was – a year and a half ago, eight dollars. Now yeah. it's four and a half, five dollars. It's the lowest it's been since two thousand nine. I think I was reading about it today. Which is great. Yeah, it's great if you're in the livestock business. Yeah. But when it was, you know, when it was eight bucks a, a bushel, you know what happened to all the ranchers? Why are we growing? Why are we raising cattle? Let's just grow corn. Right. And so they ended up growing corn. So yeah. I think you so that, that depressed the supply. That yeah. depressed the price of the supply. Right. Yeah, there's just so many things. There's so many factors. So what does that do? Now here's the problem. Here's a dilemma, for ground beef suppliers. It's not great. Mm -hmm. The reason why is where has all the demand been over the last 10 years? Ground beef. 
It's not yeah. in middle meets. Right. You know, it, it's not in that. And that the, the middle meets is what supports basically the raising of an animal because that's where all you know. You have, that's, that's where, where the your money profit is. comes in. That's all the profit is. Ground beef was an afterthought. I thought the profit was in the ground beef and that you took a loss on the middle meats. No, we were, we were an afterthought up until, about, up until this burger boom. Okay. We, we were basically a throw in. Now you have record level pricing. So here's the, you know, back to your point, right? So you have record uh, low inventory. Yeah. Sales declining. But what's happening in the burger world? They're opening up more and more burger and more joints. burger joints. Yeah. So. This is something down the road that could potentially lead to a challenge of, you know, is there going to be enough supply for all the restaurants that are open? There'll be enough, there'll be enough steaks for, till, pardon this horrible pun, until the cows come home. But, <laughs> you know, you, you, you still have this ongoing demand for ground beef that, that like we said, is probably not going to stop. So it's a very precarious situation. Um, if you spoke to my brother and father, they would tell you a more gloomy story, but I'm <laughs> but trying you to keep, are ever the optimist. Uh, sadly, I am the most optimistic guy around. I'm like, oh, it'll all work well, out. Do you end. think? Do you think that some of this uh, decline in overall beef consumption, which has also been charted by lots of statistics, um, is that because of people's concern about their health? Is it concerned about food safety? Because we were going to talk about hemp and hassep and how you guys deal with that, and whether or not you think that our our supply is safe. Um, what do you think? I mean, I, th- I think there's a lot of consumer concern over the safety. You were talking about how people want to know where their food comes. I think there's a lot of concern about the safety of their food as well, especially in the ground beef or ground meat category, no matter what it is, whether it's turkey or, or beef or chicken. So I, I, I don't I don't I don't believe that the consumer um, is, is not buying ground beef because of the safety aspect. I, I truly I, the, the way I see the market, I, I look at it from. There is a there has been a decrease in the in, in demand, but there are so many more options, right, for for protein and for food out there that people are eating yes. now that they've ne- they've never before. But the the you know, ground beef consumption continues to increase. You know, ninety percent of Americans have a burger once a month. Within that ninety yeah. percent time frame, I think it's it, um, eighty five percent of those ninety have a burger once a week. Yeah. So the numbers, you know, I think it, it, it's, it's, it's a moderation play, which I, I, I mean, I believe in. You, you know, I love burgers, but don't eat a burger five days a week. Right. <laughs> just, not, just doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Yeah. But, um, but I also think that the cost of ground beef is not helping sales. Right. When you're, when you're at record highs every single summer, it's very difficult for, um, you know, the, the consumer to walk in and say, well, I only have it like, you know, I only have a dollar to yeah. purchase I'm going to get more chicken for that dollar than I am ground beef. Huh. Because the, 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 if you look at the cycle, you have a three to five year cattle cycle. Yeah. You have, uh, and I'm probably very wrong on these two numbers, but I'm going to throw it out there. And I think chicken's like 50 days. Chickens are six, six to seven weeks. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, somewhere in that area. And then, you know, pork's a little longer. Yeah. But think about how quickly they can respond to market well, demands. Pork is about 12. I think pork is like somewhere between nine and 12 months. And cattle is what? 13 months. No, 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 18? We're, more. Three, we're, it's a three to five year cycle. Hmm. I mean, it, it's it's significant because when when that um, heifer has a has a child, yeah. they can't replenish. They can't birth again for another, I think, eighteen months. Oh, I see what you're saying. Yes. Okay, so, yeah. So that's because they go to slaughter before long before five years. I oh, mean, we you, can't even sell cattle that are over three years. Yes, uh, thirty Most, months. Is yeah, the, right. Is, um, anyway, let's go on though because this is the topic that really concerns me and probably many of our listeners. Um, 
Now you you source primarily from certified Angus beef. Well, Correct? no, so, well, so that's that's what's on your website. Well, of course, no. So that's one of the products that we sell. So CAB is oh. a is a brand. Um, so. I love them, by the way. They're great, great yeah, people. They're great people. I love John Sticka. I've, they took me on this incredible press junket a few years ago. They hooked me up with Temple Grandin. I got to go to a slaughterhouse. Oh, I wow. mean, it was like amazing. They've done amazing things for me. I love them. And also, I could see how hard they work at determining their quality and maintaining their quality standards. So if you're going to buy conventional beef, certified Angus beef, I think is probably top of the line. Yeah. One of the top lines. I mean, look, we're a huge supplier of certified Angus beef, a huge support uh, mechanism for our organization. We just launched in retail uh, certified Angus beef products right. in our Schweiden Sons label. That so, must be what I was seeing on your website. Y- yes. Yeah. So yeah. you know they've been really, really supportive mm-hmm. of. But they're they're a brand within the. Uh, w- they're within the conventional beef production uh, model, which is to say that they do not have antibiotic and hormone free animals. They don't have a grass fed line. Um, they don't use the buzzwords that consumers are looking for or think they're looking for in their beef supply. And what my question was to you is, um, you're not actually actually buying or you're, those are not part of your protocols, you guys, or do you have customers who we are do. making those demands? Because I'm thinking back to like Chipotle last year, mm-hmm. if you remember, um, they were saying, well, we cannot find enough antibiotic and hormone-free cattle, or and I think it was just antibiotic-free cattle, um, to supply all of our restaurants. And so we're going to just make an announcement in each restaurant that we, we do not have that. And if you want to buy some pork instead from Nyman Ranch, that's going to be you know, what you want in those, under those sort of, um, categories. So what do you, what's your stance on that? And how much do you see a demand for that? So here's what we've done. We, as, as you mentioned before, we're a a boutique supplier As, as much as we do it on a large scale. We, so we make, we've been making natural, Ground beef at our facility now for probably How do you define six, natural? Because that's a very, very squishy word. Yes. And that's, I'm going to jump. I'm, and that, <laughs> by the way, that's part of the, yeah. part of my whole rant. I'm going to okay. go on. All right. Um, good. So, very good. We okay. like rants. So on the natural side, it's like this. We believe that if we're going to produce a product, it's going to be a never, ever product. Now, what, what I mean by never, ever is no antibiotics, steroids, hormones, anything like that in the product. Right. We actually have teamed up with a company called Certified Humane. Oh, I was, okay. So there you go. Yes. So that was one of my questions. All of our natural is certified humane, mm-hmm. never ever. You know, could, could we go out and buy withdrawal programs and things like that? It's all out there. And we don't, if we're going to produce or we're going to sell this product, our thought has always been quality, quality, quality. Right. So back to CAB for a second. We actually sell a CAB natural product, never uh-huh. ever program. Um, it's not a withdrawal program. But the, here's, the, here's the problem. All right. And it goes back to the, conversation we just had before the ground beef demand in natural is humongous yeah we 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 cannot get enough of the never ever program right but the problem is the demand isn't there on the middle meats so if it's not there on the on on the middle meats there's less um motivation to grow natural cattle now in addition to that you know, we had a meeting with one of our suppliers who makes a product called Aspen Ridge, mm-hmm. and it's a single single feedlot. Well, it's not single feed; it's a single um, packing house, and it come, they take it from multiple family ranches. Mm-hmm. But you know, he explained it to me this way, which I thought was great. Take an ocean; that's your cattle supply. Right. Then take out these, you know, X amount of cattle because they don't fall into it, and then you have to take cows out; they don't fall into it, and then you have you take this out and that out. Next thing you know, you have a pool. So you, right. you took this huge ocean of what your supply is and you've narrowed it down to a small amount of pool. So that's where we're in in the natural. And I think we're, we're at a great point in terms of the demand aspect. There's a demand for it. 
Yes. I think I, I think though there, there's still a big disconnect between what the real demand is and what the the movement claims the demand is. Agreed. And as I always say, the movement's great, and companies don't jump into the movement until it's profitable. And, and, Absolutely. and we're getting there. And but now you know we're sitting back and saying, um, from our perspective, is we want to sell more natural. We 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 think the product great, um, great point of difference, but we have supply issues. And mm-hmm. so I can't go to a customer and say, you know, you're going to be you want to be 20 units in, in in two years. I don't want to bring you something that that I can't supply you. Right, that I cannot continue to guarantee a consistent yeah. source of. Um, I think that is just the most interesting thing you have just said to me, and you just opened my eyes about this issue in such an interesting way. Because when you say the demand for middle meats is not there, that just tells the whole story. In other words, if you're a guy who wants to run that kind of a program, but the only thing that you can sell is 200 pounds worth of quote natural ground beef, and the rest of it has to go into the commodity market, then, you know you're not going to grow it period end of story and i mean i just see that as like the biggest hurdle to changing over because i think that what you're saying also is that people think that's what they want oh let's talk a little bit about the price difference can mm-hmm. you can you uh, talk about that for a second the price difference between growing cattle at the on the sort of natural say it's antibiotic hormone and steroid free and by who steroids people who listen to this program go back and listen to the show about ractopamine that i did with um with uh, Guy Lawner again, because that's been a big point of contention in this country about whether or not we're going to feed our animals these steroids. Um, but uh, this, you know, how do you make the, the price point work for your consumers if so? Like everything, if, in only, the- <laughs> if only the ground beef is selling, right? Seven, six, seven years ago when we first started selling natural, mm-hmm. it was unaffordable. Mm-hmm. And, and that's why there was no growth for us. It, right. it was, you were talking about premiums of, call it, Maybe seventy, eighty cents a pound, mm-hmm. which is humongous. That's huge. I mean, right. it, it's you know yeah. we're to, to your listeners, we're you know call a, a, a typical ground beef, but we're there two seventy, two eighty. Let's say on a you know to a to a restaurant owner, that's a huge proportion difference. You're talking you know a, a big, big um, detriment to your bottom line. So what happens, like everything else, is the demand starts to increase a little bit. The um, our suppliers start to scale. So over the last two, two and a half years, the price has gone down significantly. So there's really, really maybe about a 25, maybe 20 cents a pound premium. So if the price has gone down, that means the supply has increased. Yes. More ranchers are following yes. these protocols. Okay. And it has increased. Yeah. Um, but like you said, is the, the incentive to raise this cattle only comes if you can get the full, um, the, the full amount for each cut of beef. And, right. if, and if they're not getting that... You know, they're just, it's not something that the rancher is, in, because it, look, the grain costs more, raising sure. the animal costs more. Sure. There's, a, there's a price difference on every part of the supply chain. Um, it's partially why organic is not even remotely in the, in the topic of conversation for product. Right. Because the, the, the grain itself, uh, organic, is, is just, is, it, it's, not, it's not palatable yet to the, right. to the masses. And soon uh, it won't even be available when we have all the drift from the genetically modified corn that's flowing around in west <laughs> I, I just know hamburgers I, I don't yeah right we're not gonna go there <laughs> well i think this is just a fascinating conversation you've been a great guest so let's just drill down a little bit more on this supply issue because so when chipotle said 
I cannot buy enough. I can't find enough of this. You're saying that you also have trouble finding that supply. So when you're talking to somebody who wants to do an all-natural program in their restaurant and you say, hey, you open five more units, I can't guarantee my supply. You know, do you see that there will be more demand? I mean, will that – is there enough demand, do you think, to keep pushing that needle forward? Or do you think you've sort of like hit the wall with that, I guess, is my question. I don't say that we've hit the wall. Um, I, I think that it, it goes along with the whole concept of replenishing this herd. Mm-hmm. So once once the the, the feedlots are, are back up at some somewhat near capacity and you have a larger pool or larger ocean like I described before, right. then you'll have more uh, more natural cattle available. But unfortunately, our industry is is um, is is consolidated, and you have yes, a certain is. amount of of packers that that are uh, involved in the in the in the programs and the processes and look they're responding to demand they're a business so the you know we need we need more cattle to be um, to be raised we we need the ranchers to make money we need the feedlot owners to make money we need the packers to own money uh, to make money and obviously we need to make money and that really hasn't existed over the past call it five, six, seven years. It, it, it's, it's the weirdest supply chain conversation of all time. You have, you know, when, when, the, when the live cattle number goes up, the feedlot owners and, pa- and the ranchers make money, but the packers don't make money. So it's like why everyone's rooting against each other. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a very, um, very poorly uh, supported supply chain in, the, in that sense. So I think from a natural perspective, you're going to continue to see it grow, but Look, I mean, Chipotle is a great example. Chipotle is opening four or five stores a week. Oh, yeah. I mean, it, it, the growth is tremendous, but the raw material supply can, cannot grow at that. Like on the chicken side, of course, it can because it's, you know, six, right. 60 days or pork. on the pork side, apparently, it, it can too. It can as well. And now, but, you know, when you have to forecast out five years, mm-hmm. three to five years, that's pretty difficult. If you have to forecast out two months, it's a much, you know, so I think you're going right. to see more of that. Uh, come into play and you know we're hoping and everyone's you know trying to uh, to uh think that this cattle herd will replenish in the next call it you know six months to, to a year and but you know we've been hearing that story for a couple of years so right well i guess we should wrap it up here but uh jamie i want to thank you so much for we're joining done already me today. yeah believe it or not it's for almost 45 minutes so um people can took it take a look at your website to learn more about burger maker and more about schwein is it schweiden sons or yes. schweiden brothers schweiden sons schweiden sons that is your new retail uh venture that will i guess we'll be seeing in supermarkets yes well they're right now in uh in Shoprite. Mm-hmm. so we've uh they're in the tri-state area here right and then check back to our website uh schweiden sons which i really love the feedback of your listeners we we were relaunching the site um in about a month we put a, a, a we think a nice site up there but we did a really cool we think idea so we'd love to have uh, listener support but we're uh, by the fall we'll, we'll start to expand our business in, in the uh, in the Schwad and Sons label fantastic well congratulations and thanks again for coming into the studio it's always nice to have somebody right in, uh, across the, the table from me instead of on the phone um, this has been a real eye opener com- conversation for me very helpful and uh, we will continue it over lunch at Roberta's 261 Moore Street and remember folks you're not going to hear this anywhere else. So turn on your computer if it isn't already on 
and hit the donate button, folks. I've offered to donate as well. That's right. Thank you, Jamie. And uh, remember that this week's donations are all a part of a matching gift. So um, let's take advantage of that. Let's build this radio station further. Let's get more great programming on the airwaves. And let's learn more about our food supply and great suppliers. Um, thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next week. We'll be talking about fish in California with the Natural Resources Defense Council. It should be another great program. Thanks a lot for listening. So long for now. Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archive programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.